Let us pray. Dear God, in this brief conversation that we call a sermon, we bring ourselves and all the joys and struggles of this past week. And in this conversation, we bring your groaning and beautiful world. Into this conversation, we bring our dear congregation here and the weighty decisions before us. We bring to this conversation this morning all our children, our parents, and all the generations that came before us. And we enter now into this conversation with you and the story of how you have healed and reoriented all of human history in the crucified and risen Jesus. And today we're going to meet people like Peter and Paul and see how this conversation transformed them into such alive and loving and faithful people. The kind of people we long to be. The kind of people we long to be. And so now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, open our ears. Soften our hearts, dear God. Soften our hearts for this to happen in us today as well. Amen. During the uh, sharing time last Sunday, our Midler class got up, remember over there, and they invited us all to go downstairs to see the two huge sheets of questions that they have posted up down in, or down in the uh, fellowship hall. I, I'd like to invite uh, that group to just stand up here. Uh, Brisa, Tyler, Miranda, Ashanti, Addie, and Evan. Or Evie. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. This group of young people is asking some Really wonderful questions. Did you see them? Questions like, is God a boy or a girl? Does God have six fingers or a thousand? (laughs) And the one I really like, does God like being God? I sure hope so. You know, the poet David White says that the marvelous thing about asking questions is that they shape us as much by the asking as by the answering. At his father's funeral this past Thursday, Bob Herr movingly shared a question that his father had asked after losing his first wife in a tragic, tragic car accident. Back in 1960. And that question was, God, why? Why? 
It was a question of deep anguish, Bob said, and deep faith. Because faith is more accurately measured by the courage of our questions than the certainty of our answers. And Bob shared how his life and the lives of all eight of his other siblings have been lived out as their response to their dad's deep, deep question to God. Have you ever noticed how often Jesus asks questions? You know, if you count them up, and I I let someone else count them up, uh, there are actually 307 of them. 307 Jesus questions in the New Testament. And back in the 1990s, when I was returning to the faith, and I was beginning to read my Bible again after a very, very long absence, I remember that it was Jesus' questions that most deeply and profoundly impacted me. Sometimes they hit me with the force of a freight train. You ever experienced that? What are you looking for? Do you really want me to make you well? Who do you say? Who do you say that I am? You know, by asking so many questions, Jesus is showing us his own deep, deep roots and foundations in his Jewish faith and the rabbinical tradition that surrounded him. There's a wonderful joke about this. Why does a Jew always answer a question with a question? And the punchline is, why shouldn't a Jew always answer a question with a question? Good question. Now, please don't sit there here this morning and mistake Jesus for someone who just enjoys asking confusing questions that lead us absolutely nowhere. Jesus' questions absolutely take us somewhere. They launch us. They launch us to become people of the way. Did you hear that in our Acts passage? The early church is called people of the way. Not of the destination. People of the way. And whose way? Jesus' radical way of love and justice and wholeness and holy living. His questions... bring us into a loving conversation with God, with each other, with our true selves, and with the world around us. Quite simply, Jesus asks us questions that we're never going to be done answering. Never. Because they're that good. Did you know that 
Jesus also, he doesn't just ask 307 questions, he is also asked 183 questions. And the interesting thing is that he only answers eight of them. And he only answers three of them directly. Three out of 183. In all the other situations, he responds instead with a parable or with another question. Now, dear friends, he's not trying to drive us crazy. What he's trying to do is launch each and every one of us into deeper reflection, transformation, and discipleship. He wants us to be people of the way and not of the destination. And you see, answers just have a way of making us feel, all of us feel like we've arrived. But questions launch us on a spiritual quest. Don't ever miss that inside the word question is the word quest. Did you notice that Jesus asks a question in both of our readings this morning? Paul, breathing threats and murder, is on his way to round up the followers of Jesus up in Damascus. But then a question from Jesus knocks him right off his horse of certainty. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Notice that our risen Lord does not ask, why do you persecute my church? He asks instead, why do you persecute me? The church. Including East Chestnut Street. Is none other than Christ's living and breathing body in the world. To get in touch with this reality, I invite you just to raise up your hands. And to reach over slowly and touch the living and breathing body of Christ that we are. Just contemplate who we are for a moment. We are the body of Christ in the world. Amen? I invite you to just put yourself in Paul's sandals for a moment. If you thought that Jesus was nothing but a heretical teacher, and that's what Paul thought that Jesus was, who got exactly the kind of execution that he deserved, which is what Paul felt, 
then can you imagine the cognitive dissonance when this Jesus suddenly appears to you in a vision? Jesus' question turns completely upside down all of Paul's previous certainty about who God is. Who is this Jesus speaking to me? There's a connection with God that Paul never realized. It turns upside down who Paul thinks that God loves and doesn't love. turns upside down what Paul thinks God is doing in the world, and it absolutely turns upside down what Paul thinks he's going to spend the rest of his life doing. Jesus' question launches Paul on a quest that will eventually lead him to join the very community that he's been out hell-bent to destroy. That's the kind of impact that Jesus' questions can have on us. In our second story, Jesus asks another life-changing question to Peter. But Peter's a little thick-headed, and so he has to ask it three times, right? It's on the cover of our bulletin today. Simon, do you love me? Now, notice where we are in this story. It's very, very important. We are back along the very shoreline where Jesus first called Peter to follow him three years earlier. Okay? Are you there on the shoreline? And we're also by the very same sea where Jesus calls him to step out of his boat in a storm. Same same sea. And today, Jesus draws him out of his boat one more time. Notice that Peter's times of deepest conversation with Jesus require him always to get out of the boat. And then once Peter finally swims to the shore, it's beside a charcoal fire that our risen Lord now ministers to Peter in one of the most tender conversations in all of Scripture. By asking him the same question three times, Jesus is taking him back, back, back to another Charcoal fire. Remember that one? In a Jerusalem courtyard where he denied Jesus three times. And by this second charcoal fire now, Jesus is naming and reliving and completely forgiving Peter's three denials. And he's showing us that he wants to forgive and to heal all of us as well. 
He wants to launch a new community who will go out now to love and to forgive with the same kind of abandon. And dear friends, where does Jesus say that all of this loving and forgiving is to begin? In His church. Simon, if you really love me, then go feed my sheep and tend my dear lambs. Isn't that such a bummer? I mean, can't we just sit around on the beach and bask in the warmth of the risen sun instead? But instead, Jesus forever connects our love with Him, or our love for Him, with our love for His church. He won't allow us to love Him without loving His church even when it disappoints us terribly. As the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer once put it, those who love their dream of the church more than they love the church itself become destroyers of that church. Even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest earnest and sacrificial. Friends, what what might that mean for us? Are you and I more in love with East Chestnut as it really is? Or our dream of the church we think we should be? I know which one I'm often more in love with. How about you? In our discernment process these past 18 months, we've been asking a whole lot of questions. Do I hear an amen? Amen. Do I hear another amen? You might even think we've been asking more questions than even Jesus asks. Amen? Yeah, I feel the same way. But two central questions have always been at the heart of our discernment process together. The first question How do we hear God calling us to receive gay and lesbian persons into the life of our church? And the second question, how can we have this conversation together while preserving the loving relationships we have with each other that we treasure so much at East Chestnut? Now, for some of us, are even asking this question about sexuality has been deeply shocking and painful. It has caught some of us by complete surprise. 
For others of us, we have already been grappling with this question for many years, and some of us even many decades. And this grappling has led some of us to hold on to church tradition, but with a new grace and spaciousness. And this grappling has led others of us to believe that our tradition needs to change. Along the way, some of us have been asking, why is this conversation happening so terribly fast? What's the big rush? And others have been asking, why is this conversation taking so terribly long? When will it ever end? You can see why I'm not sleeping well these days. But along the way, I've noticed us slowly changing the the wording for the second discernment question. Because we don't want to just settle for preserving our loving relationships with each other. We actually, we want to deepen them. Amen? And even though having this conversation has sometimes been scary and painful, it's also helping us all to get to know one another more deeply. What's at the heart of our faith? And because how can we really know each other? How can we really know each other if we don't know basic things about one another's kids and grandkids and siblings or even each other? A seminary prof of mine, Timothy Geddert, tells the story of a church that he was pastoring that came to a rancorous impasse over, (laughs) believe it or not, what time worship should be on Sunday evening. I wish we had such a simple issue to chew on together. But you know, these things get symbolic, right? And they take on meaning within a congregation beyond just 6 o'clock or 7.30 in the evening. At the end of an especially painful congregational meeting, Timothy asked everyone in the next week to meet for a conversation with someone who held the opposite view as theirs. And uh, it actually got hilariously complicated. So Tim called Jerry. Can I stop by tonight? Nope, Jerry said. I'm having coffee with Lucy. Uh, How about Tuesday? Uh, uh, Frank's coming over. Any chance we could meet mid-evening? Well, with Frank, uh, it's not likely we'll be over by then. Here at East Chestnut, what if 
Each of us had one of these conversations. Between now and our members meeting on April 24. To meet with someone with whom we differ for one hour. One hour of real conversation. And by real conversation, I mean one in which both people, both people, are transformed by their deep listening for the voice of Jesus in the other. If you're hearing the call of the Holy Spirit in this idea, then send me a note and I'll be happy to send you a very simple format for one hour, no more, one hour, for you to have this conversation. For my prof's church, these conversations opened up a whole new spirit of mutual care at their next members' meeting. And might God use our conversations to do something similar before April 24? May it be so. Let me close. I recently had the chance to read Betty Fry's memoir. And I recommend it to you. And she, being the humble person that she is, probably most of us don't know that Betty Fry has a memoir. And I think she's not here today, right? So you all can ask her for it now. In that memoir, she poignantly shares about the lasting power of a good question to shape her life. And her good question is simply, What does love require? You can keep asking that the rest of your days. What does love require? Dear friends, what faith question is guiding you? Guiding your life? A question that you'll never, 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 never be done answering. Because the wonderful thing about a good question is that God will use it endlessly to shape you as much by the asking as by the answering. Just ask Paul of Tarsus. Just ask Peter of Galilee. Just ask Betty Fry and Bob Herr and Brisa and Tyler and Miranda, and Ashanti, and Addie, and Evie of Lancaster.